Um, I, I smoke insane amounts of cannabis all the time. So dry mouth is just part of my existence. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I don't anymore. Um, but at my height, I was smoking about two ounces per day. Now wow. it's still, you know, around an ounce a day, but which is still pretty ridiculous. Thankfully for the concentrates, now that number can at least sound lower when you explain exactly. it to people. Yeah, I only got yeah. through, yeah, I only got through a couple of, grams. I go through an ounce of concentrated. <laughs> well, so I, I actually, um, I, I, I was back in the day. I was known as like the king of dabbers. I, my, my first cannabis club. I was one of the first ones openly uh, providing BHO, and. You know, this was like <laughs> before uh, nails were ever invented, and we were using these little swing things that everybody liked to burn oh, themselves yeah. on. And I remember I got one of those, yeah. <laughs> Back in that, but I did, um, <clears throat> like a, a couple years ago, I did this full gram dab off this thing called the Diamond Loop. And mm. it, it, it <laughs> it's a really awesome little tool. But if you overheat it, um, I took a whole gram in one inhale. That's a bit. And uh, I couldn't breathe for about eight hours. And, you know, ever since I've kind of uh, switched back to joints over back fat dabs. But, wow. You know, they, they'll always have a place in my heart and I still put them in my joints. But back in the day, it was, you know, I used to love to say, yeah two grams is about equivalent to two ounces, but you know, it's now I just smoke fat joints all the time. There, there we go. So, all right. The lungs can only handle so much. That's why you got to boof it. There you go. Well, you know, uh, I'll I'll wait for uh, jail for that one. (laughs) All right. So yeah, we're ready to go and get started. Put yep. the weed in my prison wallet. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now we're none of that's going on the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> the best part, damn it. <laughs> All right. So All right, Dave. Uh welcome to the show. Like I guess we've got Dave Hodges from the Ambrosia Church on with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh Dave, what would you, you know, people in the papers, at least as they say on the internet, saw your face with an article about a church that you founded in Oakland uh, being raided last August. And uh, we, you know, for the listeners that don't yet know, right, Oakland is one of the first places on a municipal level that decriminalized the overwhelming majority of psychedelics. And then uh, did you form this, uh, was this church formed before the decriminalization law went into effect? Yeah, well, we were actually, we started out as a cannabis church. Um, when and, was that? When know, was they, that? Uh, that was January of 2019. So it was shortly before Oakland passed their decriminalized nature law, um, which, you know, I actually brought these anthogenic plants to the same level as cannabis in Oakland. Uh, in 2004, Oakland had passed a, a lowest priority for law enforcement for cannabis. So both cannabis and 
all entheogenic plants have our lowest priority in Oakland. Got it. So all all on the same level. And did I remember reading correctly that it, uh, 5-MeO-DMT wasn't specifically listed, but pretty much everything else? Uh, yeah, well, it's anything that can come out of a plant. Got it. And so if you can get 5-MeO-DMT out of a plant, you're good to go. Yeah, if you could figure out how to extract it from a plant, you'd be fine. It's just, um, you know, not out of a toad or uh, not synthesized. Got it. Uh, but, you know, one of the big things that people don't quite understand is it's not actually decriminalized. It's lowest priority for law enforcement. So it's it's still a really gray area, to say the least. That's a really great point, because decrim is such one of these broad words like microdosing, right? It just means a lot of different things. The government still can enforce the laws, uh, so they still have that potential. But how they're going to do that is uh, guided right by the statute. So. Yeah, well, sort of. You know, I mean, decriminalization to me means the removal of criminal penalties, and that's not actually what's done by lowest priority. Got it. So, yeah, m- meaning like making it only a civil, potentially civil issue, no criminal consequences. That's the kind of decrim you prefer. Right. Versus what lowest priority does is say, well, it's still a criminal charge. You can still be charged criminally, but it should be the lowest priority for law enforcement to deal with this issue. Got it. So what, uh, take us to the time from your founding of the church then to this particular incident, which uh, got national attention, right. Of, uh, being raided. Uh, well, you know, what, uh, what happened in the interim? Yeah. Well, um, so just, just a short background on, on me and the church, you know, I I was involved in the medical cannabis industry in California, um, for, well, since about 2009, uh, and opened the first cannabis club in San Jose, um, in the Bay area, which is a large city out here. With that, uh, you know, being the first means you're the first to have problems and, means you're the first to end up in court and all that fun stuff. <clears throat> um, so I, before even opening this, I, I've had a, a very strong relationship with cannabis and I've dealt with too many attorneys and too many court scenarios um, <laughs> than, than I ever thought I wanted to. Um, but when I opened the church uh, in 2000, or 2019, the goal was to open a cannabis church and to take this to a federal stage if needed. Um, I was ready to protect our religious use of cannabis at a federal level if necessary. Well, can I jump sure. in? What, what, what was important about doing that at that juncture? In other words, by this time, uh, California had had medical for a while, right? And Yeah, yeah well, it, it, so... California had a beautiful medical industry before legalization passed. Um, and, you know, there you can find some articles talking about it and really, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily the most popular topic. But if you talk to anybody that was involved prior to Prop 64 passing in California, the industry was amazing. You know, the, the variety of product, the competition, the the lack of barriers to entry, really had a a flourishing industry in California. And Prop 64, you know, if you get into the, where the language originally came from, was um, a a set of medical cannabis regulations being worked on by the state. 
that was heavily influenced by the League of Cities and the Chief of Police Association. And this uh, medical marijuana regulations was designed to fix the issues that they were having with medical marijuana in California. Well, if you talk to anybody in the industry, the issues that we were having were completely different than what the League of Cities and the Chief of Police were having. Um, as somebody in the industry, the problems that we were having is the cops really, really wanted to deny any legitimate use of, of medical cannabis in any way, shape, or form. And we were still getting harassed and having to go to court. Well, the, the problem with the League of Cities and the Chief of Police Association is they kept bringing us to court and we kept winning. So the original core language for what became Prop 64 was actually designed to practically destroy the medical cannabis industry. And because this was 136 pages and you really had to be somebody who both understood how to read laws, but worked in, in a way that you could truly understand the input impact. Um, most people didn't really understand that by passing prop 64, they were going to destroy the medical cannabis industry in California and really create an industry that isn't, can't even really support itself. And it, like I said, there's some articles sure. out there that yeah. people can find that talk about that. Um, but that had happened and I had spent, uh, prior to Prop 64 passing, I had spent about eight years working to get a better initiative passed, one that was actually designed by people in the industry. So, so for, for, for legalization, you're saying? Yeah, for legalization. Exactly, yeah. So simultaneously so, while you're entertaining the, the church angle here, you're trying to get better legalization passed. Well, this, this was yeah. this was before the church. Okay. So, um, you know, when when Prop sixty four passed in twenty sixteen, I was really kind of lost. Um, you know, I, I ended up doing consulting for a while, and then in twenty nineteen is when the the church uh, presented itself. There were some people that had a property that wanted me to do something and really believed in, that it was something that I should do. Got in the political so, route, in the political route of trying to make changes to Prop sixty four after it was passed wasn't really uh, yeah, a viable thing. That, that's one of those things where you know people really understand need to understand what they're passing and how they're passing because the dialogue in the industry in California at the time was, oh, we'll pass it and we'll fix it later. Well, if you talk to any of those people today, they will tell you absolutely never do that fixing something like that through a political process is basically impossible um and, and that's why the vast majority of cannabis businesses in california are actually failed because there's not the regu the regulations are so um overly strict and the available outlets are so small there's not there, there's nowhere close to what people hoped and believed could have existed. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I could, I could go down a, a whole hour's talk at least of, you know, the different little points that really caused that. But sure. sure. But you, uh, you were ahead of the game. You've been in the biz for a while. Dispensary in San Jose, still yep. getting hassled by the cops, the medical program, 
Prop 64 didn't really make things better, made things worse, and an opportunity came along to do a church version of practicing and working with the medicine and yeah. take, take us so, from there. Yeah, so I opened that in 2019, uh, January. And then in uh, June is when uh, decriminalized nature passed. And that actually just caught me completely off guard. Um, I, I had no idea that anybody was working on it. And the, the idea of this getting passed by city council, I mean, there, there are very few places where that could actually happen. And Oakland happens to be one of them. Um, after reading that, I was like, well, this is, this is a clear sign that we need to support other plants. And that's something that I've always believed. Um, but out of the plants listed, you know, there's a boga, um, peyote, um, mushrooms, and um, uh, DMT, right? Yeah, well, it, D, DMT, ayahuasca. ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah ayahuasca. I'm trying to think of what they actually list in there. Um, and extracts of any of those things are actually able to. So that, that's where you get DMT and pure mescaline. Um, but out of all those substances, the only one that's really safe for somebody to do on their own by themselves is mushrooms. And I had actually been called to the mushroom for a very long time, even though I had, I had never done them before. I um, actually had an experience the, the year before at Burning Man where I was talking to my friend Rick Doblin and said, hey, I... I think I'm ready to try psychedelics. I feel like I should do the mushrooms. And my thought was that next year, 2019 at Burning Man, which I go to every year, would be my first time trying mushrooms. Um, the mushrooms had a different plan, clearly, uh, because June, which is a few months before Burning Man, is, is when that law passed. And shortly after that, we started providing mushrooms. And I'm not going to talk about something or give anybody something if I don't understand it. Uh, so I had to try it myself. And that, that's where things kind of got really weird. And there's, there's a whole story that I talk about how um, I went from doing five grams to 10 grams to 15, 20. And then the highest dose I've actually done is 30, 30 dried grams in a single dose of mushrooms. Um, but that was all guidance from the mushrooms telling me I need to take more and I need to understand these things. Um, which, you know, the, the there, there's a, a few different things that we, we put out for the church where I really get into the de details of how all that happened. Um, but it was very clear after I started uh, understanding these tools that this was something that I was meant to do and something that was very, very important for people to truly understand religion. Got it. So you created this uh, church in Oakland, right? And yep. began practicing this, uh, you know, year with these plants, with cannabis and mushrooms, and people started showing up, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, so before the raid, we were just pure word of mouth. Okay. Um. So, you know, that, that's why a lot of people hadn't really heard about us is that was completely intentional. The goal was to just do what we need to do and get support and, and 
be ready for what was going to come next. So really from the day we opened, we were expecting a raid to happen. Um, cause, cause this is kind of your experience in the past, right? With, with cannabis, the same sort of, uh, uh, yeah, approach, yeah right? it's, okay. it, it's, um, you know, I, I never, this was the first time I'd ever been raided, which, uh, people who knew me in the cannabis industry were kind of shocked by because they, they just assumed that I'd gone through it before. And, I've known a lot of people who have gone through it, so I know how it happens and why it happens and what's going on. But this was actually the first time I'd ever experienced it myself. Um, but we weren't expecting what happened. You know, we were thinking this was potentially going to be the state or, in a worst case, the feds. But in actuality, it was purely orchestrated by local PD. Got it. So just be, to be clear here, right, we're this – the basis of this movement by the local Oakland Police Department, there's no incident, there's no issues, you guys are going along, keeping it underground, word of mouth, things are going along fine. What happens where the cops are interested in what you're doing? Well, so, you know, there's a couple things to understand uh, about Oakland and um, what's been going on out here for quite some time. You know, one, one of the things is, we had actually been working with the cops, um, you know, where they, the area that we're in is a fairly high crime area. And of course we've got a bunch of cameras outside. There's been multiple shootings, um, but not related to the church, but the cops have come in to ask if we had surveillance of what's going on. And of course we, anytime they ask, we provide them video footage, um, you know, which is, which is really, you know, it, it's a weird dynamic because we're, they know exi we exist, they know what we're doing, um, and they're asking us for help, and we've been helping them. Uh, so the the first reason that w they presented in the press was that they, they did the raid because we increased crime in the neighborhood. Um, and that is that is the most ridiculous lie that I've ever heard. Um, How were you fact, so awesomely able to do that with your what what powers of the church? <laughs> what were they What were they arguing? I just well, they they didn't have any stance. So you know they they've actually changed their story three different times. But let me explain why the raid actually happened. Um, so there's in 2004 there was a, a law passed called Measure Z in Oakland. And this made it lowest priority for anything related to cannabis. So since that passed in 2004, there have been multiple Measure Z clubs in Oakland providing adult use cannabis um, prior to legalization. And a, a couple of those, you know, one, one of them was Richard Lee's club. Um, a couple of them have been, been raided by the federal government at times. But there was also local raids going on that have pretty much continued from 2004 up till today. Um, there are still multiple Measure Z clubs in Oakland providing cannabis um, without state regulations. And what's happened is this small group of Oakland PD has taken it upon themselves to go in and raid these places. Um, there's never any media attention because when the media has talked about it, but the, the story is, this is an illegal dispensary that we're raiding. 
And there's also no criminal charges that have been placed against the majority of these people. So it. It, Could you say maybe call these like pirate dispensaries? Would that be like a fair word maybe? Or well, they're, 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 they're actually, they're, they're spelled out and protected under Oakland law. A okay. voter initiative passed by the citizens of Oakland to say, hey, this is the lowest priority for law enforcement and these places should exist and they should pay a 10% tax to the city. Got it. So ever since that happened, these places have been opening. Um, many of them have been trying to pay their tax to the city only to get raided by this this small group within the OPD. And again, no criminal charges are ever placed. The cops keep the money, they smash up the shop, and they generally what happens is the shop reopens down the street. Smash and grab. <laughs> Yeah, smash the definition of smash and grab. Got it. And so ultimately, this is, I'm just saying, like to, to frame it one way, this is police department's asset forfeiture, finding a way to get money to subsidize their budget. Yes, that, okay. absolutely. And, yeah. you know, this is this has been going on again for, for years. And I was just um, going to jump in, like on the psych, on the cannabis part, right? You guys, separate from the, Decrim initiative, you were already protected. So in other words, doing the cannabis stuff separate from raids in the past, in other words, if you're doing, uh, having a cannabis church in and of itself, is, is that is that is that enough to get their attention, the OPD, or is it, you know, does that fall under this sort of like these clubs? Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? Or is it because this uh, other plants, is that what really gets their attention? Really, but it's... It's anybody doing anything that gets their attention if, if they think there's money there for them to take. But the, the cannabis, um, you know, it, again, it's supposed to be lowest priority for law enforcement. And these places are supposed to exist and they are supposed to be paying taxes. Unfortunately, none of them are paying taxes because the raids have been happening. So, you know, the, it only takes a couple times for you have just paid the city you know, a hundred thousand dollars and then have the cops come in and, and raid you for you to go, well, f why am I paying the city any money? Sure. Um, so unfortunately these places do exist in Oakland and they should be paying the city tax, but there's not really any motivation to do it. Um, and, and that's not used in any of the justification for the raids of these places either, whether or not you're paying or whether or not you're not paying. Um, but the, the raid on the warrant says for cannabis. Okay. They, they, uh, the undercover goes in and it's, well, what's the, what's uh, the actual charge? You know, what's the, what did the, what did the judge sign off on, on the warrant? That, an uh, illegal dispensary. Okay. So, but, but, and, and on the flip side, you're clearing for us this, uh, Z, you know, <laughs> yeah. a rule allows these things to exist, requires them to pay taxes. They've been trying to pay taxes. The, city hasn't been enabling that and uh, well no the, the city will take the money but, but know, yeah they, they'll take yeah. the money but then they can still come down exactly you're saying the next day and say no you're not following the rules and uh we're gonna shut you down take more of your stuff yeah the the big the big disconnect is between so there there's literally one officer whose job it is for dispensary enforcement in the city of oakland and this is officer john romero so John Romero's job is to make sure that the dispensaries are following any laws they need to be and to deal with any crimes related to that. Now, he's taken it upon himself to say, well, that means that 
I need to go shut down these Measure Z clubs. Um, but that's not, that's definitely not his job. That's what he's decided his job is, uh, which gets and, into and, the whole. Yeah, which, which know, makes, which priority. makes people, but, but it makes the department happy because he's helping to fill their budget. So even though you're saying from a crime perspective, it's lowest enforcement priority. If people can bring in clean money, right, to yeah. the budget, everybody's happy with that. Well, and, and that's that's really what it's all about is, is the money. And, you know, I mean, that's that's where it's there's actually a conflict between the city and the OPD on this um, because the city wants the tax revenue. Now, they are more than happy for any business that is going to hand over 10 percent of their gross um, to do so. And the these Measure Z clubs want to do this, but they don't because of what's happening from this officer. Um, so the, you know, the, the landscape out here is, is really <laughs> interesting to say the least. Um, but that's, that also highlights one of the big problems with the language of lowest priority because measure Z was actually the foundation for decriminalized nature. Uh, both laws are pretty, pretty close to each other. And they both use the law or use the language that this should be the lowest priority for law enforcement. Um, but what a law enforcement priority is, isn't really defined and is really subjective to whatever officer feels that there's a priority for whatever reason. Sure. Um, so the, again, the landscape out here is, is, is pretty interesting, but the, the reason we did this in Oakland was because it is the lowest priority for law enforcement for cannabis. And what we were looking to originally do was to take the cannabis issue to a federal court level, um, protecting our religious right to use cannabis. Uh, so given the, the landscape in the state, Oakland really made the most sense. It was just... <laughs> I, I would have never imagined it, that right after we opened that they would say, well, actually, all entheogenic plants are the lowest priority for sure. you. Um, so, you know, it was really, it's really interesting, but it, it's also, we are protected on a federal level. Yeah, let's talk about that. Do. This this is what it really comes down to, right? Is that you're saying, okay, sure, separate from the decrim, we're not just a Measure Z private dispensary, right? We're church. Right. Yes. That's that's so. Yeah. So give us then both maybe your position or where do we go from here? Because it would be a different issue if the OPD had raided a Measure Z dispensary that right that had nothing to claim around the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or the First Amendment, any of that stuff. But you're saying, no, we're a church and uh, what you mess with the wrong people. <laughs> yeah, basically, um, you know, it's. We would have been perfectly happy just existing on our own and, and continuing to to spread the word, um, just word of mouth. But the um, this whole scenario really brought us to a bigger stage. And it's, you know, I, I, I realize after all the work that I've done with mushrooms that this was always part of my path. And this, this setup um, with the raid, it actually couldn't have been a better scenario. Um, the, the fact that it was 
purely Oakland PD means our lawsuit is going to be uh, against a local law enforcement in federal court for violating our religious freedom. So it's a really nice clean case to say, hey, local PD, if you come across a church like this, you can't mess with them. Um, and there isn't really, you know, there there isn't really any other cases that have happened like that yet. Um, the UDV case was customs seizing ayahuasca. Uh, some of the other cases have been federal agents coming in, um, but you haven't really had a local PD um, held accountable for doing the, these sort of actions. So the the outcome of our case, if and when we win, uh, will really set a really nice standard for everybody to do what we're doing throughout the country. Um, but beyond that, you know, the if you look at the whole how it happened, why it happened, what's on the warrant, um, the scenario of what happened that day, you couldn't we couldn't have been asking for a more perfect setup. Um, you know, they came in. Well, yeah, let, let's frame this real quick. So you you were you were raided, but you weren't arrested. And then this means now that you're turning. Nobody. You're, but you, but you're turning around and suing the federal government, right, for then infringing on your First Amendment rights. Is that a? Yeah. Well, a, and, and see, here's the thing: we won't be suing the federal government. We'll be lo- suing yeah, exactly, the local police exactly, department. But right? it, but it's gonna you know take take it in the federal pathway. Yeah. 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 Well, so the um, you know the. Again, we we were not we were expecting a raid, but we were expecting something different. We weren't expecting this exact scenario. Um, when they came in, they came in with way too much force. They had twenty officers. They cleared the building as if it were some sort of cartel drug den. I think it's a, there's an officer to number of grams correlation. How many grams did you say <laughs> you taken the most? Uh, yeah, yeah. One, one officer. Okay, well, there so, you go. At least one officer. Yeah. yeah, almost one officer for every ground. Is this like flashbangs going off and doors getting kicked in? Um, n- not quite. <laughs> we we do have all this. We have the surveillance video oh, of everything, geez. and uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll get into the the details of how we ended up with that, which really explain a lot of what's going on. But so they they came in. Um, guns drawn, 20 officers block off the street, um, clear the building, point guns at a bunch of people. You know, they, they've already done an undercover um, investigation, and Officer Romero has has come and signed up as a member, agreed to our rules and all of this, um, acknowledged that we're a church and that we're doing this as religion, but that's not what it says in his um, affidavit for the warrant. And definitely never uh, took the 30 grams because no, wouldn't, no, wouldn't no. come back. And... But they, they know that there's only one security guard there that has a gun. So coming in with 20 people, guns drawn, is overwhelming force uh, for what they needed to do. They could have accomplished the same thing with two officers. So they come in, they clear the church. Um, then they decide to call the fire department to cut into our saves. And, you know, the, the thing about saves is you, you call an expert and they can get in to them with a drill really quickly, most of them. Um, the the firefighters spend over an hour cutting a window size hole into one of our saves. 
shooting sparks all over the place. Uh, I'm I'm somewhat surprised they didn't light a fire in there. There's literally sparks bouncing off paper towels. Um, all this to get into one of our saves. Uh, they they actually injure a firefighter while doing this. They leave a trail of blood that they then decide the way to clean up. You know, in the middle of this pandemic, is to wipe the blood into the floor. Um, and then I come back. So when when the raid first happens, I'm not there. I come down five minutes. They're still clearing out the people. I start yelling in the street at the police. I'm responsible for all this. You're violating our religious freedom. If you're going to hold anybody accountable, I'm the guy to talk to. If you need to get into the safes, I'm the one to talk to. Clearly putting acknowledgement on I'm the guy that you want to arrest if you're going to arrest somebody. They didn't arrest me. They looked at my ID. They wrote down my information, and then I was free to go. So I leave, go home, talk to one of my attorneys. Um, she comes up with this this idea of a letter that will have the police sign. And if they if they sign this letter, it's basically saying, we'll let you into the saves, but you acknowledge we're not waiving any of our rights, that we view this as an illegal action of you violating our religion. So I take that document back down to the scene where they just finished cracking or opening one of the saves. The firefighter's already been injured. Um, I present it to John Romero, which is the officer on the warrant and the guy who's responsible for the raid. And he, he brushes me off. He's like, it's too late for any of that. So then I ask, well, who's his boss? And I end up having uh, about a half hour long conversation with a sergeant on scene. And, you know, we're going back and forth. He, I, I'm saying, hey, sign this and I'll let you guys in the safe and you can get out of here and stop wasting your time. Um, he's saying, well, look, I don't have the the power to sign this. The only person that would sign this or could sign this would be the city attorney. And, you know, I did the math for him. It took you two hours to get into one safe. There's four more of those. And then we have one safe in there that's actually rated at an eight hour safe for a professional safe cracker to get in. So looking at what you guys still have to do, you're going to be here for at least another 14 hours. That means I have 14 hours to go get the city attorney to sign this. And then he comes up with the, the compromise of, okay, let us into the eight hour safe and then we'll pack our bags and leave. <laughs> Right. That's clearly, that's where you got the good stuff. Come on. Because that's where I have the money. But I've already told or, or you. Or the special mushrooms, you know, the yeah, albino yeah, well, mushrooms no, from Mars that Elon Musk is creating. Out of. This is all about money. That, right. And 100, just, 100%. They were, this they totally were to proves go. that. And, and I, I told the sergeant, we don't have anything in the safe. But John Romero was absolutely certain that that's where we had the million dollars in cash. And, you know, I mean, that's the smart place to have a bunch of money. If you have a bunch of money is, is in the eight hour expensive safe. So I, you know, on the phone with the attorney and uh, okay, I, I agree to the deal kind of hesitant because like really they're going to pack their bags and leave. I just let them to the safe. Sure enough, I let them to the safe. They, they see some old paperwork that they're not interested in and it's not full of cash. And they pack their bags and leave. Um, 
but you know it, it that's just the absolute demonstration that what they were going for was the money you know that, that's that was why they were there is to take the money and the fact that they packed their bags and left um the surveillance system four other saves with with more sacrament in it um and and got out of there so that we could start cleaning up and open the next day, which is what we did. Um, really just shows you how not committed the majority of the people were to it, including the sergeant. They didn't want to be there. It's Romero had, had done this paperwork and now you've started a process and you guys got to follow the process and do what you need to do. Um, and that's where they were coming from, and that, that's also where I was coming from, which is why the sergeant and I actually had a pretty good conversation and, and connected because he understood, look, I'm, I want to let you into the saves. I just have to make sure that I'm not waiving any of my legal rights in doing so, um, and you guys want to get out of here. You just have to follow the paperwork, and that's the only reason why you're here to begin with. Um, so, so they raided you, they interfered with your activities, they took money and sacrament as well? Is that, yep. Okay. Yep. And so what then is going to be the basis for your suit against the city of Oakland? It's a violation of our, well, it's, it's not against the city of Oakland. It's going to be specifically. P- p- police, uh, the individual or? Yeah, well, uh, probably the police department. Uh, um, you know, we're we're still looking for the right federal attorney to represent us with this. Um, I do have a California attorney that's already been working on some stuff, but we we need the right federal attorney who has experience in this to to be confident to file in federal court. Which there's there's a few I've been talking to and. They're all really supportive. Unfortunately, the ones that I've been talking to so far aren't able to do it either because they've retired or because there's a conflict of interest not related to anything we're doing, but other contracts that they have. Um, so we, we will find the right federal attorney, but we have about four years before we we have to file this case. Um, the goal is to do it in much less time than that, but there's also been no criminal charges. Sure, you know, there's sure. no, um, right now the, there, there's, there's no criminal issues that are happening and nobody's being charged with any, but anything. And the, the support in the city council is actually in our favor and not in the favor of the police. So that, that was actually one of the things that kind of came out of this raid that, that shocked me in a few different ways is how how much support we have from the city itself and how little support the Oakland PD has from the city. Sure. So uh, the city doesn't want uh, a lawsuit, right? Where they're lost. Well, know. no, it, they, they just passed this law that said these things are the lowest priority. And so, so what, what would you like to see happen? You know what I'm saying? In a, in a legal strategy and a legal framework, what would you like to see the sort of path to all the way up to the federal level through? The- well, you know, I, I can't remember the exact um, law that my lawyers were talking about, but there's um, there's a couple different angles that we have. But the goal is to use the Restoration of Religious Freedom Act to 
get our sacrament back and to get reimbursed for uh, the damages that they've done. Um, in addition to holding them accountable for what was really illegal actions taken by the, the Oakland PD. Sure. And let's just say all of this is happening because these medicines are federally scheduled, right? In other words, that's the only way ultimately that the federal government still has authority and the local ones are able to, uh, you know, act the local municipalities is because of the federal status. So do you think, do you see these things in the next couple of years being resolved at a federal level or is it through protection of the first amendment in churches, this stuff's going to be practiced or how, how do you, since you're looking at, you know, spending time to fight this, how do, how do you see it all, you know, potentially going down? Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different political um, uh, gears in the works, you know, both in the state of California, but even federally. Um, but the, the angle we're really coming from mainly because I'm, I'm a true believer in this is that these are religious rights. You know, if you're asking where religion came from in the first place, our ancient ancestors consuming these mushrooms, um, and having these experiences where, you know, on the, on the high doses, you meet entities that can communicate with you without language who are here to teach you things. And, there is no doubt in my mind that this is this is how we evolved to believe that there's something more to this reality and even the ability to discuss abstract concepts like art and god now this is this is the core of where spirituality came from amen so but how do people uh, make money off that and how do police departments uh fill their budgets, you know, (laughs) (laughs) if we all get our rights back, how's there, how's this whole machine going to keep on keeping along? You know, when when you get into the war on drugs, it is, it is really one of the biggest problems with society these days. Um, And and it really, you know, it's, it's interesting how much that actually has to do with religion. You know, the, the first, um, the actual start of the war on drugs was by the Roman Catholic Church uh, going after heretics and witches that were using potions um, to access the divine. And, you know, there, there's actually a, a really interesting book that just came out, The Immortality Key, which uh, even ties the origins of the Christian faith into um, a, a psychedelic wine. So this is really, these experiences are the core of where religion came from. But at a certain point, um, religion or the people running it decided that individuals having the experience of God and understanding the other side, it doesn't benefit them as much as telling them, oh, hey, listen to me and read this book and do what the book tells you and do what I tell you. So yeah, you couldn't have is, you couldn't have witches freestyle freestyling at home making brews, you know, when you could have the German beer purity laws and having the men control the 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 yeah. brews and and the texts and the religious texts. Well, you you can't have somebody experiencing God that doesn't match up with your your religious text. 
you know, I, I believe that there's a lot of core truth that pretty much every religion has, but, you know, there's some that it's, it, it's fairly obvious, you know, this, this is not, I mean, the, the old Testament talks about a incredibly jealous, vengeful God. That's not the God that I've experienced. You know, the, the God that I've experienced is one that is everything that is everyone. Um, it, it would not tell you to go murder a bunch of people and steal their land. Um, so there, there's, you know, there's a whole, depending on which rabbit hole you want to go down, there's, there's a lot of, um, core truth that can come out of these experiences. And if you've had an experience that tells you either God is love or God is everything. And if we are all the same, why should we kill each other? that doesn't fit in with somebody saying, well, Hey, you believe my book. You believe what I tell you. If you don't, I'm going to kill you and make sure you kill anybody else who doesn't believe what I tell you. Well, so what, uh, maybe we can then shift to what before, since before the raid and after the raid, what, what kind of stuff does, uh, your church do with these medicines? And, uh, yeah, how can, you know, we, what can we expect, I guess, to see in the country from more of these medicine churches, you know, coming online and coming above ground? Yeah, well, so, you know, the, before and after the raid hasn't really changed much other than the fact that people can now find us a little bit easier. Um, you know, that that's before the raid, we did everything we could to make sure our address was never listed on the Internet, to make sure that nobody, um, we, we didn't put any any public facing ads and this this was a purely word of mouth um, existence for us after the raid um, you know obviously people are finding articles and people are talking about us and they they can if they search hard enough they can find out how to get to us um, so there, there's definitely been a, a a surge of people finding us um, and, and coming in you know well, so, they, so like they, if mark and I came out to Oakland and came to visit your church. Tell us about what it might, uh, what what we might uh, expect. Or... Yeah, well, so the, <laughs> the biggest difference that's happened lately is between before COVID and after COVID. Um, you know, before COVID, the church was a gathering space for members where they could hang out and consume cannabis. Um, we we weren't allowing them to to consume mushrooms on site um, because it, it wasn't really safe for anybody to do so. But cannabis um, is a lot easier for, for people to have a good experience and leave without putting themselves in any physical danger. Um, <clears throat> but it was a meeting space where people could hang out. And then on Sundays at 420, we would pass out uh, joints and I would get up and give sermons where I talk about the origins of religion, the use of mushrooms and cannabis, uh, along with other entheogenic plants, and my own personal experiences on these really high doses. Um, so that's that's what we will get back to when we can gather people together. Um, right now, it's just a place where you know it, it. You can come in, you can talk to us, but we also provide access to these, um, these tools. 
Got it. <clears throat> I haven't been to church in a couple decades. I was I was raised Catholic. Um but I would consider I'd consider going back if it took place at four twenty in Oakland. Yeah, you know, it was <laughs> it was our most popular time. You know, we we, we definitely we you know, we have pews in there and a stage where I give the sermons, but uh, on on Sundays at 4:20, it used to be the the, the most packed house that we had, um, and, and people are just they're they're really interested to hear these things, but also to be able to ask questions. You know, there's um, especially when you're talking about the the higher doses. There's a lot of the weird experiences that can happen, a lot of deep experiences that that it's helpful to be able to talk to somebody who has gone through it and has some understanding of it and can provide you guidance or at least help you to understand what you experienced. Definitely. So during your uh, services on Sundays at 420, could people, would people be consuming their own cannabis that they brought? Would could they be consuming it in different uh, forms or tell us about what? Well, we, we were the, the uh, sermons, we would pass out joints for everybody. Okay. So, you know, that, that pre, was, pre-rolls for everyone, the, the lows, yeah, lows and fishes, pre-rolls. The, the, sturman, the sturman had to start with everybody sparking a joint. So that, that was, again, we'll get back to those. Those, <laughs> those were definitely some of my, my favorite experiences, um, you know, and it, it's, it, people are really drawn to, uh, what we're talking about and and viewing trying to understand really more about where religion comes from in their own spirituality. Um, and the way I talk about cannabis, you know because there's the mushrooms, um, when you get into the the religious use of those, you you eat enough of them, you are going to have a religious experience. That's the only way you're going to be able to describe it. Um, with cannabis, it's kind of more of an advanced tool. So the uh, first time I was ever, somebody ever brought to my attention the, the religious use of cannabis was actually somebody complaining that they didn't like smoking cannabis. And what they said was every time they smoked, it was like there was a giant inner eye that would look in on them, tell them everything that was wrong with their, their life. And that is actually really the true spiritual use of cannabis is awakening your inner eye and using it to examine both what's going on in your existence, but also to understand religion itself or what's going on in the world. Um, and that fits really nicely into the mushrooms because you do these, these doses and you have these experiences that you really need to try to understand. So uh, what I personally do is I'll, I'll do these, anywhere from 15 to about 25 gram journeys on a regular basis. And I'll have the experience. And then after, after the fact, I will spend the next few days just trying to understand what, what I was shown and what it meant and what I need to do next. You were uh, a little bit of a late bloomer to the, to the mushroom, uh, ceremony, but you've certainly made up for lost time. It sounds like (laughs) Yeah, you know, I, I never, I never imagined I'd be somebody that that would be talking about high dose mushrooms. You know, I, I, I really felt drawn to them ever since I was a, a little kid. But 
I, um, <clears throat> you know, in high school, when I first tried cannabis, I kind of made this commitment to myself, um, that I wasn't going to do anything else. I was only going to smoke cannabis to prove that it can't that it kill wasn't you the gateway drug. Yeah, it's but not it the gateway out. drug, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I still say it's not the gateway drug because I'm still not on a bunch of. I I only I've only ever done a lot of cannabis and a lot of mushrooms, but the other part of it was to prove that cannabis can't kill you. And as I kind of told you earlier, I did this. I had this horrible experience where I did a a whole gram dab that was way too hot and consumed. Uh, a gram of cannabis uh, concentrate in one inhale and couldn't breathe for about eight hours. So that, that kind of proved me wrong. You, you can actually kill yourself with cannabis. It's hard. If it's to do. on fire and you try <laughs> and, <laughs> and if eat you're, it. <laughs> you're going to coat your lungs with wax, you know, that, that could be a bad thing You need to get oxygen in those. And, you know, I, uh, honestly, now I, I see how naive it was because you can kill yourself if you drink too much water. You know, any anything in excess is is going to kill you. Um, the the difference with mushrooms is it takes about four pounds to get there. Um, you can still do it, but as somebody that's consumed thirty grams, I, I can never imagine ever imagine consuming even a pound. You know, that that's that's going to be nearly physical physically impossible and you were you're going to be unable to drink any more or eat any more well before that point what does this uh recent bill that was introduced in Cal- california to decriminalize psychedelics at a state level if uh that process is successful what does that mean for what you're doing or does it change or add anything? Or uh, it, it, it really doesn't change much. Um, you know, I really hope it does go through. It, it would, it would make it, um, kind of a, a similar lowest priority, um, scenario where it, it doesn't, it doesn't, in my opinion, go far enough. You know, I, I'm, I look at this from a church or religious angle, but I also feel like what happened up in Oregon, where they have clinics um, that are going to be able to really uh, bring these things into a more of a medical controlled environment. I think that that would be a great thing. And even beyond that, um, taking it to a situation where you could have stores that actually provide these things. I, I think that would be really where it needs to go because this, this war on drugs is, ridiculous um and you know all you do when you make things illegal and and you don't allow um allow for a legitimate path for anybody to acquire it is you fuel the black market yeah i agree do we have to solve the or end the war on drugs through this religious pathway you know to to get the protection Uh, or I, I hope not. I hope that the war on drugs can be ended by people just coming to common sense and going, wait, hold on. Uh, let's actually treat the issues uh, of addiction and uh, the the other negative aspects that can come out of uh, drug use as medical problems. 
Sure, sure. But let's uh, just go straight back to the, we said it's a lot, it's about money, right? This whole process of Oakland PD. So how do we change the model, whether where we either get rid of the incentive, right, to go out and do this or find the way for cops to pay for it in another way or don't have the cops doing this kind of stuff? You know what I'm saying? How, how do we at a systemic level uh, address that so you don't have cops busting down your door and using laser torches to break into your yeah. safe to get money. <laughs> the jaws of life in a giant, you know, the, the tools that the, the fire department uses to cut into a car is what they use to get into my safe. Um, Yo, bro, we're hungry it, for your money and we got the jaws of life to get it. Yeah, exactly. as, as someone who's pro fireman, I'm <laughs> not in favor of the danger that the firemen get yeah, into when is... they could just easily cut themselves open on these yeah. sharp oh. safes. This is the no, war on no, drugs, no. like all the military equipment, right, being used in drug raids, and now the jaws of life in the fire department being used to get the money. It's, yeah. No, it, like literally shrapnel from the safe hit one of the firefighters in the face. Ouch. And there's a trail of blood where he's dripping little blood droplets going outside. So literally a firefighter was injured trying to get into our saves. But I'm just thinking um, of the pictures with like all the cops when they get the weed and they stand in front of it. I have a picture in my mind of that guy, blood dripping down his face, but he's like leaning <laughs> over like thousands of dollars, like employee of the month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it's really ridiculous. I mean, to, to answer your question, there's, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. You know, it's it's not going to be one thing that just ends the war on drugs. Um, and, you know, what what we're doing, um, if we win in federal court, is going to be something that that really will will change uh, the landscape significantly. But it's you know, we, we really need to get past this whole if somebody's doing drugs, they're a bad person and they need to go to jail. Or they um, can't have high level White House jobs or top secret security clearances. Yeah. yeah. Then, oh, it, it's ridiculous. And, it, and when you get into even, even some of the more dangerous drugs, I mean, like heroin, the solution to heroin is to give it away for free. Sure. And, you know, they've, they've done this in Portugal and it's, yeah, you know, what you have is now all the heroin addicts go to a doctor where they get free, clean heroin. And who sells heroin in Portugal? No one. Because everybody who's buying it, they, they have no incentive to buy it. They can go get it for free. And every time they go get it, they're sitting down with a doctor who's saying, hey, this is not good for you. Um, here's some treatment options. But... I don't want you to go get a dirty needle or some stuff that you don't even really know what it is and shoot it into your veins. So here you go, go on with your life and let, let's, let's keep working till we can get you treatment to help you get past your issues. Um, but the, the answer is not to throw people in jail. Uh, it, it, it's really the, the absolute worst ones. And I, I know it, it, it's not, it's not the most common sense approach, but it really is the only approach is you give them away for free from doctors who are going to help treat the people who are having these issues. And then you destroy the market. You know, nobody, no, no drug dealer is going to be able to compete if everybody can get their drug that they're absolutely addicted to for free. 
All right, so decrim at the city levels, decrim at state levels, uh, while we're fighting the sort of religious argument and other reasons to get rid of the whole scheduling artifice. And at that point, it's it's kind of over, right? Is, what else? <laughs> well, I mean, you make it sound so easy. No, I'm just saying like, <laughs> it's the pathway, exactly. We know like getting there yeah. is, is, is long. Is there, is there a way to um, – so they – with this asset forfeiture type stuff where they come in and now because you've uh, committed a crime or whatever, they can take your cash, take your vehicles, seize your property. Is there a way to, is there a pathway to getting rid of some of this asset forfeiture? So you de-incentivize a corrupt cop for. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll jump in. You've had some federal cases. It's all the way up to the Supreme Court limiting it, but it's still something that's uh, available for police departments to do. And whatever the numbers are nationally, at least a third, you know, when you average all these police departments out, budgets are coming from asset forfeiture. So, and- Yeah, no, it, it's there definitely been some reforms that have been happening, but, you know, it, it's... It really, uh, if I had my way, asset forfeiture would go to the schools. You know, take take away the motive. You know, because there are any way you look at it, there is going to be some scenario where somebody has uh, a bunch of valuable things that were gotten illegally, and you know, it could be um, counterfeit t-shirts you know could there, there there's you, you gotta have some level of asset forfeiture sure, sure. but you just but want you money taking yeah. away their ability to keep it in their department exactly basically it, it, right it, getting, getting rid of the perverse incentive yes, right exactly yeah, yeah. No, well, like because it, here's the real path and this is something i've actually been talking about for years um because i i saw it happen firsthand uh through some freedom Inf- information act requests that i did in san jose um, but the the asset forfeiture is really the biggest key to the war on drugs. Um, you know, they, they like they like to keep the money, um, but where they actually spend the money um, really highlights how all these things are happening. Because the, their favorite thing to do is spend it on equipment and training, and you know this is why they've got these these basically tanks, urban tanks, and all this military-grade weapons um, because they, they're, in their minds, they're doing good things with the money by spending on equipment and training. But who provides the training and who recommends the equipment are the associations. So the Chief of Police Association, the Counter-Narcotics Officers Association, the political lobbying arms. So you really have a direct path of asset forfeiture money leading to lobbying money where then these lobbyists are going in on behalf of their association and saying, oh, well, no, the, the war on drugs is really important. You need to keep dumping more money into it. So both they're getting funding from the government based on their lobbying and then they're getting funding from the the drug dealers where they're seizing assets and it's this this really nasty endless cycle of um you know the more drug dealers there are the more money there is to take 
Sure, and at least uh, President Biden has signed the executive order ending the federal, you know, contract basically on private prisons. Uh, does that uh, does that help the process? Yeah, I mean, the, the prison lobby is obviously a big part of it too. Um, you know, they're they're not necessarily the direct um, recipients of any of the money, but they they obviously the more people are in jail, the more they're going to benefit. So, so, so how do we reengineer this? Like here in Texas, the same thing. You've got the different police and sheriffs associations saying, "We know we got to keep the war on drugs going." The towns make money by in counties, whatever, by arresting people, right, and then having them on probation or paying their fines. It seems like it's a problem of, you know, taxation or, or some kind of thing of, like, how do you fund these municipal entities where uh, they make money or we just don't have as many people doing, like, the law enforcement if it's going to be half of it, you know, arresting people for drugs? You know, I mean, you're really getting into some of our, our deep issues with society because it's, um, you know, it, it doesn't make sense what's happening right now. Um, you know, people getting put into this criminal justice system that's really destroying lives and perpetuating a cycle of, of violence and, and destruction to our own people. Um, but, you know, cities can find money other ways. You know, if you were to, and I'm not suggesting, I, I'm pushing for this or anything, but if you were to legalize cocaine, um, that is being sold everywhere, is used at every level of society, and all the money literally goes to people who chop people's heads off. So if you were to just say, well, okay, let's put some regulations on it, control it, and make sure that the tax money generated for that goes into the coffers of the city, you know, there's a whole nother way to, to deal with these issues because it's but, not. But, but let me stop you because you come from the cannabis industry before and you saw how Prop 64, you said, kind of ruined the medical. So how do we get these freer markets, decrim, where you can get these things and they're taxed, but you don't have shitty acts and bills, right, that just reward yeah. A bunch of corporations and don't you know bring money into the communities and then therefore pay for some of these services you know well the the, the law that pass it, the laws that get passed are really the most important thing you know people need to understand what they're actually passing um you know when when you've got 136 pages of legalese it's really easy to just make it sound like, oh, it, it's fine, everything's going to be fine. And it, it's much harder for people to really get into the nitty-gritty and understand what's going on. And in the case of 64, the people who actually wrote that language wrote it to shut down what was happening. So instead of providing a path for the medical cannabis industry in California to transition into a, a legal regulated market. It was really a path to destroy the market and to only allow people that have a lot of money to lose to participate. And that's where the corporations come in because, you know, who else can afford to lose a few million dollars while they're waiting for permits to go through and 
um, you know, maybe even for the laws to change. You know, some of the mm-hmm. things that are happening in California is these these larger players in the industry, and they know they're losing money, and they're just looking at, well, 10 years from now, I'll be able to have a brand that will will be the big brand that everybody goes to. But until then, I'm going to lose money for 10 years. Well, there's only one structure that can really do that, and that's a corporation. Um, So it's, you know, it's so important that when these laws are written, they're written in the the intent with opening a new market and um, control, but lower barriers to entry. You know, there's there's no reason why, and the, California was the perfect example of that because the medical cannabis laws that everybody was working on prior to uh, Prop 64 passing, th- there was Prop 215, which was one page of language, and then SB 420, which was an additional like three paragraphs. So in total, you had less than two full pages of language that created a a situation where everybody um, could get involved at some level without really any barriers to entry. And doing that, we had one of the the most beautiful, diverse, um, competitive industries that I've ever seen exist. Um, And then again, because these people didn't really understand what was getting passed, people thought, okay, well, we're going to just take this beautiful thing we have and turn it into an even more beautiful thing, but that's not how the law was written. Um, Basically, the the public got duped. They thought they were voting for something, a pro-cannabis bill that... uh, Yep. Yeah. And and now, you know, in in the California, in the, the... legal dispensaries if you want a good eighth of weed um you know you could be paying 70 dollars plus tax and in some places it's up to 20 percent tax and you're looking at almost almost 90 dollars for an eighth of weed which which so, does not hurt the black market at all it's not going no, anywhere that, <laughs> no that, that, that it, i i often refer to prop 64 as the fuel of the black market act because you know any anybody that smokes weed in California a significant amount, um, they're not going to a dispensary. They can't afford to. You know, myself, I smoke a very large amount of cannabis. I used to smoke more, but even now I'm at about an ounce per day. If I were to try to buy that in a dispensary, you know, I mean, I, I can't pay eight hundred bucks or seven hundred dollars for something that i'm doing every day now I, i'm also you have to have a special crypto for that to be able to yeah. pull that off. i mean it, it's it, it's just completely ridiculous versus if you go to the street um you can get pretty close to equivalent weed for about 150 bucks <laughs> right so are, are you going to go spend 700 so or then you, you have go spend 150 the only people using the dispensary at that point would be tourists and then yep. during a California COVID lockdown, you don't even have those. So, <laughs> no. Well, the tourists and and people that don't smoke a lot of weed, you know, if and that that's one of the things that's been really good with legalization, is you know people who 
otherwise would have said, well, that's that's illegal, so I don't want to do it, are, are getting curious and they're finding help by, you know, instead of drinking a couple beers, taking a, a puff off their pipe. Um, and, you know, it's, if you don't smoke a lot, I, I know people that a gram will last them an entire month. You know, for me, that's, that's not even one joint, but um, it, it all depends on where your tolerance is and, and how you're using it. But they're, what you're looking at now are people that, like somebody's mother or somebody's grandmother who either wants to use it for enjoyment or wants to use it for the relief that they can get, um, but are not, are not the people like myself that are smoking an ounce a day. How this shift a little bit here, Mexico is weeks away from rolling out a legal cannabis program for the country. Uh, most people are saying that's going to make it the biggest cannabis market in the world. Uh, how is that potentially going to affect what's going on here in the U S I mean, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I don't, unfortunately, I don't know the, the details of what exactly they're, they're doing, but you know, I, they're just going to have, it, it looks like have like a good, robust medical program to start anyway. And uh, being a next door neighbor in cannabis is already legalized in, in Canada. You know, do you, do you see those having any effect on what's happening here in the U.S.? I, I mean, until the U.S. law changes to allow for the importation, I don't really see that really making much of a difference. You know, that, that's that's something that, um, would really help uh, in, in a lot of different ways if we could actually import um, or export cannabis out of state um, or even out of the country. Uh, but without federal law changing, you can't cross federal, any sort of state lines or federal lines with products. So, mm-hmm. you know, where... Yeah. And then there's there's a quality too. Like, sure, Mexico probably by volume produces more than anybody else, but by quality, if you were to do like a quality comparison, probably of THC levels, um, it's probably a lot more THC produced in California than than Mexico. Um, but it, it's it's none of that's going to be legal. They're not yeah. they're not going to be able to. Yeah, take br- these yeah. bricks of weed exactly. and, bring, and bring it her. right so so what if what if uh at the national level is it a religious case like you're talking about bringing effectively to the you know oakland pd suing them and then going all the way up to the federal or all the money now that's in you know um, especially uh, patents around psychedelics is that going to change the scheduling yeah uh how do how do you see those factors you know affecting because you're saying hey U.S. Mexico what's happening in Mexico doesn't really affect the U.S. or in, in the U.S. then what's the pathway to those laws changing is it a religious argument well, I, is it money going to change it or I, I mean I think it's it, it's not one one thing but actually on that level I think that other countries uh, decriminalizing on a country level it is kind of extra pressure on the U.S. Hey, maybe we we do need to do something over here. So there, there. I, I kind of take it back a little bit that there is there is something um, really good about the political pressure that would be 
uh, or will be there once Mexico legalizes just because, you know, what the hell, U.S., Mexico's already done it. Um, as we, uh, we, we saw with as we uh, had legal, legalization with cannabis and, and medical things go through, that really de-incentified, uh, disincentivized, yeah. disincentivized, <laughs> thank you, the cartels from bringing uh, weed up from Mexico. It's just not a thing anymore. Um, as Mexico does some of this legalization, it's going to take cartel power away in Mexico. If we don't keep up with it, it almost basically the cartel power will move over here if they can still make still make a buck over here with it so it's it'll it'll be interesting how all that plays out you know i mean it's um there's still a bunch of states that it's illegal and even as california is an example states where the black market is that just makes a lot more sense than the legal market um, so there, there's still going to be a pathway for quite some time as far as uh, large drug organizations still making money by moving hundreds of pounds across the country to get it to people. Um, but I, I think there's, you know, that we need a bunch of different approaches. You know, the, the, the religious angle that um, I'm pursuing and, you know, many other people at the same time is is one path and that needs to be done regardless because we need to really establish that this is truly something that is religious and spiritual and um you know really is is in my opinion what one of the biggest problems in our world today is that people can't actually experience god themselves they have to listen to other people tell them what to believe um so, you know, for, for that alone, religious needs to be understood and and pursued. Um, but there's also the, the political will, and some of that's money, um, but some of that's also just the right politicians in place. You know, they, the president could remove the, the Controlled Substances Act, and that's within, within their power to do so. Um, I will I will vote for anyone running on that platform (laughs) Uh, me too me too I mean well probably not Trump I mean if he he said I will still vote for Trump (laughs) me again and I'll I'll remove the control like I'm a pretty pretty uh you know diverse voter when it comes to examining issues but you know I, I can't be a single issue one especially with somebody that i don't know is actually going to do it you know it's but you know as we move forward there's the society is changing and eventually that we'll have somebody in that position who will just look at this and go this is fucking ridiculous you know it's um all we're doing is harming our own citizens and giving a lot of money to some really evil people you know i mean cocaine as an example you know all that money goes to people who literally cut people's heads off so what what what, what's the advantage of our current policy when what's really going on is these 
truly evil people are getting more and more power and more and more money. So let's end the drug war now. So we're all we're all in agreement for that. Amen. One. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Well, I think that's a, a, a great place to kind of come to a close here, Dave. And it's, this has been an incredible journey together. Any uh, last thoughts you want to leave us? Uh, future visions? Uh, <laughs> entity discussions you had at you know, 30 grams and above? Whatever. Yeah. How do you want to take us it, out? <laughs> If I want to get into, if I were to get into that, you know, we we got a whole another couple hours. But, um, be another podcast you know, next time. Definitely, anybody that wants to reach out to me directly or uh, see some of the other stuff that I've been doing, um, can find me on Instagram, and that's at at Dave Hemp. Um, also, the the Church of Ambrosia is the overarching religion, but the actual location in Oakland is uh, Zydor. So anybody who's trying to find the church, yeah, like Z-I-D-E door.com. So anybody who's trying to find the church that you can apply to become a member there Um, and, you know, stay tuned. Eventually we will actually file the lawsuit and there'll be a lot more to talk about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're we're rooting for you, yeah. praying for you. We're all looking forward to a day where we can all exercise our religious freedoms, and we hope to see you set some awesome precedents with this case. Well, thanks for the support, and you know, if you guys are ever in Oakland, definitely let me know. Well, come by and share chalices, man. Yeah, sounds beautiful. <laughs> Peace, brother. Have a good one. Thanks. All right.